Historically and today, our country has been overrun by those with money and power, giving little voice to the everyday American. We're here to change that. Welcome to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray. Well, hello, this is Judge Jim Gray, and welcome to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. The idea being that if we employ libertarian values, responsibility, of course, at all levels of society, a live and let live philosophy, not only don't tread on me, but basically don't tread on anybody, that we will all rise together, and we'll discuss all kinds of different issues. Today, we're blessed to have one of my good friends, a fellow by the name of Larry Sharp, a libertarian, and I met him through the Libertarian Libertarian Party, but also just a very successful man, has his own uh, podcast as well, a TV show called The Sharp Way. But uh, we'll talk about libertarian values and, and what, in fact, a libertarian world would look like, a libertarian government would look like. Uh, and that's just a, a really big thing. Uh, he's a businessman, started his own trucking business, and then sold it to, to a, as a successful distribution company. He's also an executive coach, management consultant, so you can tell this guy gets around, and then a strategic consultant for thought leaders in government. We'll talk about that. I'm not sure what that means, because thought leaders in government seems to be a, a, a contradiction in terms sometimes. And then a, a teacher, guest instructor, taught English, management, and business at universities like Yale, Columbia, John Jay College, and a native New Yorker, a Marine Corps veteran, husband to his wife, Georgia, and father of two daughters, Barbara and Josephine. By the way, as a Navy JAG officer for four years, I learned a lifelong respect for Marine Corps people. And so, uh, Larry, I salute you. And with that, Larry Sharp, welcome to All Rise, and, uh, and talk a little bit about yourself. Give us a little more of your background. Who really is Larry Sharp? I just touched the surface. Well, I appreciate that, Judge. You know how much I love and respect you, so thank you for having me on. It's a privilege to be here with you. Uh, yes, what, what am I? I'm, I'm a guy who's trying to actually make a difference in my state, in this nation. I think that we are in a bad spot right now. If you look right now what's happening in our country, you have a division uh, in our country, not only just left and right, but just us and them. It's really hard in almost every aspect. It's covering all of our media. It's covering our families. It's breaking up businesses. It's breaking up families. It's a big issue that I think we have to repair. And I think one of the ways that we repair that is by having a third option, an option that says, if you want to be liberal, go ahead. Just don't force your way on others. If you want to be conservative, go ahead. Just don't force your ways on others. And if we can do that, we could come together on exactly what you said earlier, the idea that if we can just be responsible for each other and not worry so much about changing someone outside, then we might actually have a better society and begin to heal uh, what we, uh, we kind of have broken over the past several decades. And I'm trying to make that happen. And what I, how do well, I do that? We need all the help I do that, that we by, get. And Larry, like you say, the word I, I think we use is polarized. Our country has never been as polarized in my lifetime as it is right now. Yes. Uh, and we should be able to discuss anything. 
anything without mm -hmm. yelling at each other, without calling each other names. And that's just all the way around the block today that, that we, if, if you even mention the word compromise, if you even, uh, we had Kamala Harris who was running for president and she made recently, you know, her big splash when she criticized Joe Biden when he was a senator for actually working with the senators from, from South Carolina and down in the South because they were racist. I mean, good seven sakes, you're supposed to work with people and, and we're just not doing that. Uh, how, how long have you been a libertarian, Larry Sharp? Well, let me touch that, that and, and your question. The issue that bothered me most about that entire back and forth, Judge, was not that Kamala Harris was bothered by it. I understand someone of color myself who is bothered by someone who's a segregationist or someone who's a racist. I understand the bothering. I do. But what, what happened is, it's, we're in an environment to where you can't just say, oh, that bothers me, and move on. You have to make a stance and attack. What bothered me was the fact that she said, I'm hurt by this. How dare you? What was Joe Biden supposed to do at that point? He was doing, and look, I'm not a Democrat, so I'm not a Biden supporter. I'm just saying, look, Biden did what he thought was best in that environment, working with people who were there to make things better. He was doing what he thought was best. How in the world should I be angry or mad at him? If I feel awkward because someone's a segregationist, I get that. Anyone of color would feel that. This means you attack Biden. But this is what we've become. The attack is so much easier. It's just so much easier to point the finger and attack than it is to have an actual conversation. But this goes directly into my libertarian world. Because when I was a youngster, I wasn't libertarian. I was not. When I was a little kid, I was raised in the Bronx, South Bronx. And in the Bronx in the 70s, when I was a kid, 60s and 70s, um, you know, you were a Democrat because your parents were a Democrat. That's just why I was. So I wasn't actually labeled. I, I, didn't, I never joined the party, but I felt like a Democrat because my family was Democrats, and that's how it works. But then when I joined the military, I joined the Marine Corps at 17. My first commander-in-chief was Ronald Reagan. And most people around me at that point were much more conservative. So I think I considered myself as an as a, uh, older teen and young 20-something, more as a Republican. I think I considered myself more of that. But it wasn't because I was looking at politics. I really wasn't. I was caring about other things that I thought was important when I was a teenager and uh, a young adult. I was more the politics of the people around me. So I went from kind of being kind of a Democrat to kind of being a Republican without actually thinking. But then after the Clinton years, I began to be very disenchanted. After the first Clinton years, I began to be very disenchanted with politics. I became a pro supporter. I became a pro supporter not because I knew anything about pro policy. I didn't. I became pro supporter because he wasn't them. I became the rebel when it came to politics. I just, I thought Perot was them, therefore he's good. But to be forward on how ignorant I was of politics in general, um, when Nader came on the scene, I thought, I thought that Nader replaced Perot. I didn't realize they were different parties. So I just then began to support Nader because I thought, oh, he's the other guy. So I was very much a, a rebellion when it comes to politicians. Um, I think you find that happened again in 2016, a lot of people who supported Bernie then supported Trump. That's kind of where I was in the, in the 1990s and then 2000. And eventually I became disenchanted in general. The 2012 comes around and I'm kind of thinking, why bother even vote? Why bother voting? It doesn't even matter anymore. And then, as you and I have spoken, that's when I actually heard Gary Johnson speak. And when I heard Gary Johnson speak, I could hear him. And I could hear him because he wasn't a politician. 
he was a businessman. He was an entrepreneur, just like I am. I was an entrepreneur also. So I could hear what he had to say. And what he had to say made sense, made sense to me. And then I heard you speak, Judge, and you were talking about the war on drugs and the idea of family and the idea of education. And, when I, and I was like, wow, this is my ticket. And that's what got me to the Libertarian Party. Now, when I started hearing Libertarian ideals, I realized something. I was already teaching them, but I was teaching them as a businessman, as, as, as a consultant. I was teaching what, what I call post-industrial leadership. And that's the idea of now after factory workers are basically going away in our, in our society, we need defensive workers. I don't need you to be just a good cog in the machine. I need your initiative. I need your creativity. I need your brain. I need you to have ownership of your job so you can make it better. Things change so fast. You're able to adapt. To do that, you've got to want to be there. You've got to want to volunteer. It isn't about me yelling at you and saying, you're a master. It's about me convincing you that this is important. This is valuable. It's about me as a leader having a vision and a mission up front. And as I taught that, I realized that's what libertarian is about. It's about the idea of a volunteer society, not forcing people to be the way you want them to be, but showing them through your example, through your mission, through your works, through your community, that this is the way you should be. You should want to be this way and allowing for different views, allowing people to think different ways and allowing for the most important piece in business. And I think in government the same, and that is singularity of purpose with diversity of thought. When you have diversity of thought and singularity of purpose, you will have success in any endeavor. And I think government, life, business, family, no different. Larry, I, I certainly appreciate what you said. And I learned in Peace Corps training a long time ago, it was in San Marcos, Texas, that there, people will not change their ways, their philosophies, their beliefs, unless there's what they called a felt need. That is, it has to come mm. from within. So you get this, in effect, by leadership, and then they look around, just like you have been, saying, well, that's, that's right, that's kind of the way I, I feel as well. But you, you can't do it by lecturing, ordering a government fiat. It has to come from within. And then you go on to yes. say, basically, if you're going to be successful, we're in the service business. We provide a service. We provide a, a product that was reasonably comp is competitive, is, is reasonably priced, and has quality. That's what you're talking about about libertarianism. And, and you're simply right that we have many great leaders. Gary Johnson, I was proud, as you know, to run as his vice presidential candidate in 2012. The conversation on the phone that we had when he invited me to run on his ticket, after I agreed to do that, he told me, Jim, if you disagree with me during the election campaign or if and when we win, feel free to say so publicly. I mean, how many people have the confidence to say, I want to do it right? Uh, this, If I'm wrong. I, I welcome people to disagree. I welcome other ideas. And, uh, and he meant it. So I, I, I was very persuaded by Governor Gary Johnson as well, to the degree that I'm here to tell you that had we won in 2012, the world would be a better place. I completely agree with you. And I wish it had happened, Judge. I wish it had happened. I'm with you totally. Yes, absolutely. The, so, uh, but that, that is what motivated me to become a libertarian. And from 2012, I've never been a member of a party. Like most people will say, well, before the return, what party were you? And I have none. I was never a member of any party. I kind of bounced around, basically, you know, politically homeless 
until I found this party. And I've been a member since 2012, so about seven years now, almost eight. And I haven't looked back. I was a member of my local chapter in Manhattan, which is where I work, then Queens, which is where I live, uh, then the state, and then National Party. Now I'm a lifetime national member. Tell us your view of what a libertarian is. What's the difference between the Libertarian Party and the two mainstream parties or otherwise, Larry Sharp? Yeah, and look, the, the issue that I bring up constantly, uh, the party's small, right? And we've had, in, in, as a general rule, about 40 years of failure. So a lot of our best talent, a lot of it has walked away and gone to the parties or surrendered or given up because of so much defeat. That has been changing recently, I think, to, to your point earlier, Judge, because we are so polarized. I think people are looking for another option. And the option that we are that makes us special is you can be, if you say to yourself, you know what, I'm super conservative and I think everything should be conservative, you have to ask yourself one question. Do you believe it's the government's job to enforce your will and to force everyone else to be conservative and to force the society to be conservative? If you say yes, you're actually a Republican. If you say, no, it's not the government's job, it's my job through my example, through my work, through my community, to show people they should be more conservative, that we should have more of a conservative environment, then you're a libertarian. If, you're, if you are very liberal, I'm super liberal, oh my God, I'm so liberal, awesome. Do you believe it's the government's job to enforce your will on others and to force society to be more liberal? If you say yes, you're a Democrat. If you say no, it's my job through my work, my community, my example, to show people we should have a more liberal society. If you say that, you're libertarian, which means we are home for everyone who just doesn't want to use force. As the saying is, let you be you and I'll be me. If you're in that world, which most Americans actually are, most Americans are voting left or right because they fear the other side is going to enforce their will upon them. The right thinks the left is turning the country left. The left thinks the right turn the country right. But if we just could accept, no, no, you can stay left, I can stay right, you will see more people come to it. That's who we are. Now, there's a problem with that. Problem number one is, because we believe in everyone being who they want to be, we do fight a lot. We argue a lot. Libertarians, oh my God, do we argue. And we argue for two reasons. Number one, because you have people who are very left and very right in the same room. Right? When I ran my campaign for governor in New York in 2018, very often I'd be in a room and I'd say, how many people here are registered Republicans? Hands to go up. How many registered Democrats? Hands to go up. How many are registered, but neither of those two? Hands to go up. All in that same room. No other candidate could do that, which means we argue. But the critical distinction here, if two, if Democrat and Republican argue, at the end of that argument, it always ends with, there ought to be a law, we need legislation, we need a rule or regulation. When libertarians are done arguing, it doesn't end in that because we don't believe in forcing and law. We don't believe in that unless there's an actual victim and someone being hurt in some way. So how I, I would end is one of two things. You're a jerk or you're not a real libertarian. That's how our arguments end. They never end in law or rules or regulations. And that's what makes us different. But there's a second piece that makes us special. We actually have an ideology. Now, you might say, well, Democrats, Republicans do. In reality, they don't. The Democrats and Republicans are actually tribes, and their policies change based upon whoever their tribal leader is, whoever's the warlord. And if you can look back, and you and I, Judge, are old enough to look back, look at a Carter Democrat versus a Clinton Democrat versus an Obama Democrat, different Democrats. 
Look at a, uh, a Reagan Republican versus a Bush Republican versus a Trump Republican. Different Republican. Why? Because the tribal leader changes. Therefore, what it is to be a Republican or Democrat is whatever the tribal leader said. Go back 10 years. You had Democrats wanting to build a wall on the southern border and Republicans saying, oh, it's too expensive. We don't have the money. Now it's reversed. Why? The tribal leader changes. When it comes to Republicans in the uh, Libertarian Party, we have actual principles we fight over. I can call myself King of Libertarians all day long. I'll be last off the stage because it doesn't matter. We don't have a tribal warlord. We have principles that we fight over. And exactly to your point on Governor Johnson, when he said, look, I can be wrong because he realized principles matter. You know, he's, he, what, what, there are many reasons why I love him, but one of them is because he's an instinctual libertarian. He just knows it feels wrong. And he's okay if you tell him, that, Governor, that doesn't feel right because he knows the principles matter. There is really only one party of principle, and that is the Libertarian Party. You will hear people say all the time, well, are we a, a, a government of men or a government of laws? And I say neither are impressive. Men die, laws change. Imperial Japan was a nation of laws. I'm not impressed by that. What I want is to be a nation of principles. Principles don't change. Men have to move towards, and women, I shouldn't say that. Men have to move towards principles. And laws change, I hope, and move towards principles. Principles are critical. Libertarian Party is the only party of principles. Yes, and I... I commended to you, Larry, off the air before we began to go to the website isidewith.com, www.isidewith.com, and you can take a test. You can take it privately, but you can show yourself where you come down with regard to liberal, conservative, libertarian, it's or authoritarian, whatever. And uh, I came out something like 87% with, with, Governor, with Governor Gary Johnson, but it's just an interesting exercise to take. And also, I view the classic libertarian as Thomas Jefferson in so many ways. And he made the comment, I don't care if you worship one god, 20 gods, or no god, it doesn't pick my pocket and it doesn't break my leg. In other words, just live and let live. You live your life as an adult the way you wish, as long as it doesn't wrongly affect my or others' rights to live our lives as we wish. That's called a libertarian. And, and another thing that occurred to me while you were talking, uh, I understand that Mao Zedong, when he took over in uh, China, dictated, of course, he was was the guy, he was the the warlord and everything else, and he dictated that, oh, we're going to have a, a attack on sparrows because sparrows are eating our fruit before it ripens and harming our product. And so they did. And they they killed all the sparrows, which meant that they had an insect infestation like you've never seen before. And millions of people died of famine. You know, if you have the government intruding into the marketplace, uh, it's just literally like you're putting people in charge who don't pay a price for making wrong decisions. If you have the free enterprise system and you make a bad decision, there's a cost to be paid. So you work it more carefully and you actually do what works. And and that's just the example. And another one, when I was on a radio talk show quite a while ago and was talking about hemp, and this was a radio talk show from Iowa, and a farmer came on, it was a call-in show, and said, well, Judge Gray, I'm going to speak against my own economic self-interest because I raise corn. But we're talking about ethanol, which is a gasoline additive, and actually the government has dictated that corn be used to produce ethanol, but the farmer told me, said, you know, you can get more 
ethanol from an acre of hemp than you can an acre of corn, and the corn will clog your carburetor and the hemp will not. And of course, that's not my field, but I can tell you the free enterprise system would figure that out right away. There are consequences for making bad decisions. So all of that is connected to libertarianism, So and that's why it just it just works. And I don't know, as I sit here, and I, this is not a call-in show, Larry, but what, like you said, I don't know what the Democrat philosophy is. Uh, other than government yeah. will take care of us, uh, and I guess that's that's it. Uh, and the yeah. Republicans have abandoned their principle of more limited government because they have, with mm-hmm. President Trump and the Republicans, uh, we fought the Iraq war on a credit card under George W. Bush. We're still paying that mm-hmm. one off, and will for our children will be paying that off as well. So I don't know what a libertarian, uh, I don't know what a democratic philosophy is at all, and I don't know what a Republican one is. And like you say, it just changes with the tribal leaders. So I'm really with you. you you've explained it brilliantly from my standpoint. I'm so glad to hear that. You know, the, the number one thing we have to realize when I talk to people about this, when they say, well, I want government to do this, so government to do that. I said, great, I'm glad you do. I said, do you think that monopoly is a good idea? And they go, no, monopolies are bad. I said, yeah, government is a monopoly. By default, if you have monopoly, you have stagnation, you stifle change, you stifle innovation. That's kind of by default, don't you? There's no opportunity to do other things because government's controlling it, right? And they go, oh, oh, but, but government's a monopoly. I said, doesn't the government decide if the government runs something, doesn't it become monopoly? And like, oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's the problem. You're still putting monopoly in. It just, it's, a, it's a better feeling monopoly because you think your guys are in charge, whether you're a Republican or Democrat, whoever's in charge at the time. You think my guys are in charge, so this monopoly is good. No, no monopoly is good. It's not helpful. In fact, if you look at the aspects and different industries and sectors of our economy, the ones that are controlled by government are the ones that have problems, right? Look, look across every industry in America, and you will find similar, similar trends. One of them is lower pricing over time. You find more innovation over time, and you find more accessibility for people of every you know, uh, socioeconomic background over time. A good example of this is a cell phone, right? There was a time when having a cell phone in the 80s and 90s, it cost several thousand dollars, you had to be wealthy, not many people had it. Now, almost everyone has a cell phone, right? So it really, that's a good example of that. So look at examples where it doesn't work. Healthcare, education. Once the government takes control of it, all of a sudden, look what happens. Pricing goes up, accessibility goes down, service goes down in every case. And the best example I give you on top of that is, look at uh, medical, versus uh, essential medical versus non-essential medical. Essential medical, right? Nothing but complaints, problems, issues, prices, insurance issues. It's, it's, it's an issue for the past 20 years. Look at non-essential, things like cosmetic dentistry, things like LASIK eye care, things like that, right? All of those things, not run by government, all of them, pricing gone down, accessibility up, motivation. Again, you and I remember, when, when LASIK eye, eye surgery first started, they used to go per eye because it was so expensive, you couldn't afford both eyes. So they do one eye at a time, you pay that one off the second eye. Now, anyone can get that. Why? Government not being involved allows for a non-monopolistic environment, a non-oligarchy, and all of a sudden, as you said perfectly, the, the consumer begins to decide what is right and what isn't right. And the doctor often decides where I should go and what I should do. 
They see other markets. They compete for these markets. They lower the pricing. More people get access. It becomes better for everybody. And convenient payment schedules. You know, I, I, the second program we had on All Rise was a doctor by the name of Clark Smith. This was broadcast in May the 3rd of 2019. And we talked about medical savings accounts. We talked about the com- competition in, in uh, the medical field. When I was growing up, Larry, there wasn't even any discussion that we don't have enough emergency rooms, that healthcare was too expensive. I had a kidney infection. My doctor came to our house. So, But yes. then you get the government more involved. It started really with Lyndon Johnson and Medicare back in the 1965 time period. And it continues to get more bureaucratic, continues to get more expensive. Why? Because it's less competitive. And you get the government yes. out of these things. That's really what works. So uh, and anybody interested in a more thorough discussion, go back. You can get this on demand here at All Rise to May the 3rd of 2019 and talk about medical systems because if if what we want is to have our medical services run in effect by the equivalent of the Department of Motor Vehicles, that's where we're going. So we have about a minute left before a break, Larry. Tell us a little bit about your podcast, uh, The Sharp Way. Uh, Just give yourself a plug here and then we'll take our our quick break. Absolutely, The Sharp Way. You can go to Sharp Way on Instagram, Sharp Way on Twitter, the Sharp Way with Larry Sharp on Facebook, Sharp, The Sharp Way YouTube page is everywhere. We go every Monday night from 8 till 10 p.m. It's live. It's video. You can call in. I, I have guests for probably every other show, but uh, usually it's just me talking for two hours, taking phone calls live. We cover all issues. It's, it's a, the goal is to get people to ask serious questions about what's going on in their world and how we can find a libertarian view, a libertarian answer. Right? It's not really a libertarian show. I mean, I don't have a lot of libertarian people on it. I often have Democrats, Republicans, or people of just any you know, make model on the show to talk about issues and concerns they have. So if you want to go, go uh, see it, look at them, please go ahead. The Sharp Way, uh, YouTube, Facebook, and uh, Twitter and Instagram. And it's really worth doing, folks. So we're going to take a break here and, and hear some messages and then come back and talk with with. Governor, gubernatorial candidate of, from New York, prior Larry Sharp, uh, and the man on the Sharp Way. As we have heard for the last few minutes, we're going to hear a little bit more after this. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. The Libertarian Party is also the only third party that routinely has ballot access in every state. Our achievements and influence grow every year, and you can be part of that success. You can register as a Libertarian Party voter in your state to help us achieve easier ballot access. You can also visit lp.org today to become a member of the Libertarian Party, no matter which party you register with. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. Together, we can move mountains. 
Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? Definitely not. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Edward Cheney. Ed will explain full-spectrum CBD, where the whole hemp plant can be used for treatment, and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. We are Americans you are listening to All Rise, The Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. Well, welcome back. This is again Judge Jim Gray on All Rise with my esteemed guest and colleague, Larry Sharp. Uh, and as people know that listen to All Rise on a regular basis, I am almost mandated by my wife to inject a little silliness in the show before we come back and talk serious. So I, I can ask you a question. Larry Sharp, uh, do you know what you call an animal that has a nose and nothing else? And don't say ugly, that's cheating. But what do you call an animal that has a nose and nothing else? And of course, the answer is nobody knows. So there we ah, go. Ah, there we go. There we there go. We go. Okay, I got to chuckle a little bit late on that one, but but uh, it's just fun. I like Larry, you you ran for governor of New York, and you did by libertarian standards uh, us all a service. Uh, I had Nick Sarwark, who's presently the uh, the chair of the Libertarian Party National, and he ran for mayor of Phoenix. And I asked him about the election campaign, and first of all, whether they were involved. He was involved in the debates, and he said, yes, they had numbers of debates, and he was there, except for the last one, that he had a prior commitment. And then his, his friends who did attend the debate said it was just totally different, that once there wouldn't have the Libertarian in the debate, questions just did not get asked. Areas that the other candidates did not want to go into were simply avoided. Uh, but when he was there, he'd bring them up, and people had to argue about them, had to discuss them, like the healthcare situation, like our foreign wars, you know, that sort of thing from a federal standpoint. Uh, did you notice the same thing when you recently ran for governor of New York, Larry Sharp? Well, the, the thing that I noticed more than anything is uh, that we are heavily in a culture war, that people very often don't want to talk about real issues because as a politician, you don't have to. Or you, when, when there is a duopoly, when there is just left versus right, Democrat versus Republican, all I have to do as either one of them is go, I will protect you from the other. That's all I have to say. I'm not going to do anything to make your life better, but I'm going to protect you from the other who's trying to in some way destroy you. And if I do that well enough, then I win which is why you'll often find many wedge issues that people will just ask up front to decide if you're on my side or not. Some of those wedge issues are immigration, uh, abortion, do you like Trump or not? These types of things are questions that, are, that they don't actually want to know the details behind it. They want a simple yes or no answer to know if you're on my side or not, if I can trust you. An example that I, that I see is when I was uh, doing upstate New York um, campaigning, I had a guy who had a, a long farm, had six generations in his farm. He owned it for many years. Um, his family owned it for six generations. And he came to me telling me a story about how he was going to lose his farm, how things were so bad, he was losing his farm. And I thought, oh, my God, that's terrible. And what he asked me, the first question he asked me was, what do you think about Trump? 
And when I say that to people, people go, wow, that's crazy. Why would he say that? And I, and I say, no, no, it makes total sense. Even though Trump was going to be president no matter what, I was running in 2018. So whether he loved Trump or hated Trump, it didn't matter. Trump was going to be president. And Trump was going to do anything to help out his farm. So that was relevant. The reason why he answered that question was, can he trust me or not? Can he trust whatever else is going to come out of my mouth after that? That's why he asked that question. And I got that type of thing often. The left and right divide was so strong, people often wanted to know, do you hate my side? They didn't have to think, did I love their side? It, but I had to be, I did not love the other side and did not hate their side. If those two things were true, then they could hear me. So that's that left-right piece and why when there's no third party in the mix, there's no need to have real discussion, which is why you don't have any. It's not required. It's am I more culturally you know, connected to you than the other? And if I am, I tend to get your vote. You then add on gerrymandering and then who cares? That's how it works. When it came to debates, what I found is debates aren't actually about issues back and forth. Debates, particularly at the higher levels, like governor, um, president, they're actually about ratings, viewers, advertising revenue. So if the advertising revenue is there, they're going to take it. It's one of the reasons why you found the Democrats early on, uh, CNN early on, um, having those Democratic town halls with each individual uh, person uh, months before they had a, a, um, the actual debate. They were testing the viewership. Who was more popular? Was it worth it? Did it make sense? Would they get more advertising revenue? I know that people say, well, third parties should be in. They should be, but they just won't be if there's no ad revenue. It happened in my, in my run. When I ran, there were three separate debates, um, but none of them were televised, so it didn't matter. And the governor didn't show up to any of mine because it didn't matter because they weren't being televised. So I won those debates, and so what? It didn't matter. It was irrelevant. No one saw them because you had to physically be there to see them. Now, the one televised debate wasn't actually a debate. I mean, it was, but it was two people got angry on the radio, and then CBS decided, well, we'll have a, a little debate between Republican and Democrat. They didn't bother inviting us. The, our governor, Governor Cuomo here in New York, who's a Democrat, he literally ignored the League of Women Voters. Why? Not being televised, no ad revenue. Didn't matter. So, sadly, debates are very often about ad revenue and things of that sort, not about whether people want to hear the, the arguments. And secondly, the arguments in today's world aren't as valuable. It's much more about, do you fit my culture, or are you going to save me from the other? You know, the, the watchword I use, Larry Sharp, is government is money. And the difference between yes. libertarians on the one hand, because we are in the mainstream of political thought, I believe, and as opposed to the Republican Democrats, because they're pretty much together, is that libertarians do not want to capitalize on their being involved with government. They, they want just to have a free enterprise system. And just because because the Republicans win, that means their people get money. And the Democrats win, that means yes. their people get money. But everybody gets money. And, and that's not yes. what we do. Uh, I can also tell you that uh, one of the first things that I would do if I were in 
government at any level is to have sunset provisions. And this is something I think critically important that everyone should discuss. Sunset provisions for laws, that means every, I don't know, seven years, a law will, will sunset, will go out of business unless it is voted upon, reinstituted again by Congress and signed by president or governor or whatever. And the same thing should be true for government agencies. That I, I write this this program every week called Two Paragraphs for Liberty. And by the way, if any listener would like to be on that list, uh, you can find them through judgejimgray.com, my website. But it's Two Paragraphs for Liberty. And and recently I put in there the number of federal agencies we have, the number of people. It's something like 7,000 people that are by our are, are, uh, given a job by the president, and about 1,300 of those have to be ratified by the Senate. And every one makes something on the order, you can go to the plum book and see this, every one of those makes something like $186,000 a year. I mean, that's a lot of money. We have some government agencies that were started in the New Deal, Larry, and they're still in business. Yeah. Maybe they've changed their name, but maybe they've outlived their usefulness. Maybe there's duplication. Maybe we should look into this and have an audit of the government. Libertarians would do that, put in sunset provisions for laws as well as agencies. No one else talks about it, and that's a strong point that I strongly recommend that uh, you discuss on the sharp way as well. I, I agree, and if anyone uh, wants to see my, my policies, I built a policy library for my gubernatorial run. It's at Larry Sharp, that's sharp with an E, LarrySharp.com if you want to go there, and that's actually one of my policies. Judge, one of my policies is sunset laws, right? If I use six years. But seven's fine. Some people on my team went in five. Whatever. I'm okay. In that area, I completely agree. I think every law that's made should have a a sunset provision. Uh, Absolutely, because, you know, what if it's a mistake? What if it's a problem? What if it should be repaired or fixed? But there's a secondary piece to it. It, You can't, each each sunset, each law must be revoted on, and it must be voted on one issue at a time, one law at a time. Not okay. All of 2019 is okay. Each one must have a separate vote. You have to add that piece. Otherwise, Congress just go, let's just okay the entire year. So we added that aspect. Now, when it comes to agencies, 100% yes. The thing I've talked about with agencies is not only do we want to have a sunset provision on them, but we actually want to have better goals, better incentives. The problem right now is if you look at, at a difference between a government agency and a, and a nonprofit that does the same thing. As long as that nonprofit is not government funded, and many of them are, but if the, if the nonprofit has a donor base, meaning people must give money to that nonprofit to do its job. Let's look at an example. You want to service homeless people as an example, right? That's, that, that's uh, one thing that government often does and that nonprofits also do. How is a government agency rewarded, incentivized, based upon serving them? So what does that mean? If I'm a bureaucrat, trying to the best of my ability, I tell my boss, hey, boss, uh, uh, um, I, I service 100 people this week. Awesome. Good job. Next week, I service 110. Awesome. Great job. This is, I service 90. Why? What happened? Why 90? Well, 90 people were homeless. But wait a minute. Larry, we have to keep servicing people. What's going on here? Why only 90? Oh, oh, oh. Now I have to find other ways of servicing. I'm incentivized to Someone comes in who doesn't really fit the bill. I kind of just go, well, you're close enough and I service you. So I can get make my boss happy and say, boss, I see I service more people. The goal of the agency isn't to fix the problem. The goal of the agency is to service the problem. So if the problem never goes away, that's good for the agency. How does the agency have promotion? How does the agency 
um, buy more paper. How does the agency get more building space? By making sure the problem stays there and gets bigger. Now, that doesn't mean that the bureaucrats are bad. That's how they're incentivized. That's their goal. Look at the nonprofit. If you ever go to a nonprofit and they say, give us money, what do they always show you? They always put out on that stage and that fundraiser, hey, look at a success story. This is Bob who was homeless and now he's not. This is Jane who was homeless and now she's not. They are incentivized by fixing the problem. The goal of a nonprofit is to literally be not necessary anymore. Their goal is to go out of business. Their goal is to fix the problem. If we have sunset laws, exactly to your point, Judge, that our goal is within six years or seven years or insert time period, you're going to go away. They are, they're now incentivized to fix the problem before they go away. This isn't a lifetime job that we're going to constantly serve the same problem to make sure it never goes away. This goes back to those same wedge issues that we never repair. So we can make sure that the problem stays. There are literally thousands of people whose lifestyle, whose, whose, you know, their ability to feed their families is based upon a problem never going away. It's the wrong incentive. It's the wrong goal. We should follow the nonprofit um, uh, model, which is our goal is to end the problem, not to service the problem. It's different. Government is there to service. Nonprofits are there to help. You're simply right. You know, more people... Why have we as libertarians not been able to get this word out to people more? Because it makes sense, and you're, you're phrasing it differently than I would. We had on a guest uh, last January 10th a guy named Chris Coxon from Heifer International, which is a nonprofit. And they actually have the goal of, like you said, Larry Sharp, putting themselves out of business. They go into yeah. very small, remote villages that are poverty-stricken and donate to them a few goats, some chickens, some cows, that sort of thing, as well as give them advice on animal husbandry so that they can raise these these goats successfully. They can get goat milk and nourish their families, and then they start selling it to their other people. And, and they teach them banking. They teach them business so that they can, they can survive, and they become then just per- self-perpetuating. Then they also have the requirement that once you get established with your chickens and and you're selling chicken eggs or whatever, then you have to give some free chickens to some other people in your town so you actually bring in more competition and more self-perpetuation. If you get government programs in these in these areas, what they do is give a whole lot of money to the governments of those areas, resulting in a lot of those ministers driving Mercedes automobiles and opening Swiss bank accounts. But, oh, we donated lots of money to Nepal, for example, and look how good we are because now the government of Nepal likes us. Well, it's called bribery. It's just like you say, yeah. people act on incentives, and with government the incentives are much different than they are in the private sector and in the these foundations. And, and you just expressed it beautifully, Larry Sharp. Thank you for that. You also... Of course, well, go ahead. I'm sorry. Ahead. No, what I was saying is what, what most of my policies were to do that, were to encourage the nonprofit or the private sector to encourage them. Many libertarians are, are very hardcore, which is not necessarily a bad idea in theory, but it can be very bad in practice, which is just end this, abolish that, destroy this, end that. And while that may be the, the right answer in theory, and very often I agree with the, the idea in theory, the problem is the American people aren't ready for it, and it will make them afraid. And people who are afraid make bad decisions. And I don't want to do that. They tend to make things worse. What I always try to do, if you look at my policy, again, at LarrySharp.com, for those of you who care, I always talk about creating and encouraging a separate way, 
that works along with government. Meaning, it, my, my example, of course, is, you know, look at the post office, and I would say, look, there's also FedEx and UPS, right? Giving another option and allowing the consumer to decide, which means either government gets better or it goes away over time. Both are the right answer. So I don't give away, I don't end the government safety net, which is people are afraid. I create what I believe is a better answer in the nonprofit and or profit world. And then the individual consumer decides, hey, Governor Sharp's right. It's better than a government. I'm going to go there instead. And if you go there instead, the government budget goes down by default. But Larry, did we lose government jobs? No, you don't. Because those people still need to be hired, but now they're hiring the private sector over nonprofits. So the, piece, the, the, the work still needs to be done. It's just who's paying for it now. Is it being forced through government or voluntarily through either a private sector or through a nonprofit? You know, one of the things that I brought up was the idea of fixing potholes. I had this question. I was in the event the other day. And someone said, well, then how do libertarians fix something as simple as that? I said, I got it. Do you know what private company right now is fixing potholes? And I said, who? One guy said, isn't it Domino's Pizza? I said, yes. Domino's Pizza literally has a couple of crews out in certain cities fixing potholes. Why? Because their drivers are getting torn to pieces. They're causing torn to pieces on bad roads. They decide to fix the pothole. And when they fix the pothole, it's Domino's follows the government rules to fix the pothole. And they put a little Domino's Pizza sign on the pothole they fix. So I would say, let's encourage that. People said, really? Yeah. If Domino's Pizza goes out and starts fixing potholes in a, in a given community, well, guess what? Poorer communities will be serviced. And people said, well, maybe poor people don't buy as much pizza. I said, great. Maybe that's true. They don't fix the rich areas. No worries. And then the people who normally fix potholes by the city will be able to service the poor areas better. So you'll get better service, no new taxes. But what else will happen? When Domino's does it, all of a sudden, Pizza will want to do it, or McDonald's will want to do it, or whoever will want to do it also. They'll start thinking it. Eventually, we'll have rules that say, I don't like how it looks to have Domino's Pizza things all over, this, all over the ground. So instead, they'll control a city block or a road like you have now with the Highway. These potholes fixed by McDonald's or Pepsi or whomever, or a local diner who wants this. As that happens, more and more people start fixing the potholes better and better. The government has lower um, uh, 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 requirement to pay for this, but the latter will lose government jobs. No, because the people fix bottles for the government will not just be fixing bottles for McDonald's or Pepsi or whatever. They still require the talent. So you lose no jobs, you lower taxes, get better service, and get better service uh, for poor people and bad areas that don't get that service because either they don't vote or don't donate to the local politicians. Now they still get that great service. You don't end the safety net, so there's still something there. And all of a sudden, companies who are spending literally billions of dollars in marketing anyway are happy to spend the money here instead. It's all voluntary. No one's ordered. No one's forced. And you will get better service. And if it doesn't work, let's say I'm wrong and it doesn't work. So what? No extra money spent. Domino stops its model. We go back to the old way. There's no downside to this plan. You create another option and encourage other options. Either works or it doesn't, but it's never bad and no one's hurt. Larry Sharp, in the same fashion, the issue that I can think of that people do not understand or talk about is school choice. We have so many, oh, yeah. it's, this is a national tragedy. We have so many schools in our country that are failing our children and it's an outrage. And usually it happens to be in lower economic areas, which frequently means yeah. a lot of African-Americans, a lot of Hispanics. The 
institutions that should want competition in schools for exactly the reasons that you're talking about, be it potholes or, or anything else, it should be the yeah. groups like the ACLU, the NAACP, MALDEF, these sorts of groups. I'm approaching them now. We had a wonderful discussion here on All Rise by the head of the school choice, uh, Ed Choice Matter, uh, and this was Robert Enlow back in August the 2nd of 2019, but this is something that we need to get out there. And, and you ask, you know, like you were saying earlier, we don't get our cell phones and our computers from government. It comes from competition. And so, yes, originally the prices were pretty high, but then competition mm-hmm. brings them lower. It would be the same thing in schools. And, and I was actually, when I was running for vice president in 2012, I was talking about school choice, and I happened to be in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And the people in the audience started kind of waving their fingers at me saying, no, Judge Gray, we don't. We've had school choice here for about five or seven years. We don't have any bad schools anymore. Competition means either the bad schools get better or they go out of business and other people come yeah. in with a better plan because competition works. So this is something that I recommend that you discuss a lot on your show. I do it on mine as well, but school choice is something that these groups that purport, to, and I know they do, want to help the downtrodden like the ACLU should get behind. And I'm actually making a concerted effort to talk the ACLU uh, directly about school choice. Do you discuss this issue as well? Because it's so it's so apparent once you get into it and understand the issue. We do. And sadly, in New York State, we have some of the worst schools in the country. In fact, in Rochester, New York, which those you don't know, is in upstate western New York, um, they have one of the worst school districts in the country. Um, If you are an African-American male, the graduation rate is about 10% out of high school. That's how bad it is. It's one of the worst in the entire country. In New York State, we spend about $24,000, $25,000 per kid per year, um, and we rank 37th among 50 states. We are a disaster in New York State. And that's exactly one of my answers was. And again, you're just giving school choice. The, the problem is the phrase school choice has been co-opted by many just say, charter schools, that's the only answer. And I don't want to have the only answer. I want to open it up and allow local communities to have more control. In New York State, my plan for this was, was a little bit complicated, but the, the way that schools are destroyed is through controlling them through funding, right? They, they, they fund them, and that's how they control them. In New York State specifically, it's about a 60-some-odd billion-dollar um, budget just for education. I know, it's huge. That's, that's mo- more than most states' entire budget. So about $60 billion just for education. About $4 billion of that comes from the federal government. So that's how they control us. And we, we are controlled through local taxation plus grants from the, the state. Again, that's how they control us. But what is happening is the only way they control us is through standardized testing. One of the things I said was, break the root and the branches will die. The root cause of a lot of this, believe it or not, is standardized testing prior to high school. I'm against standardized testing prior to high school because all that does is it forces the schools to teach just math and English. Not that I'm against math and English. I think math and English is awesome. But I also think art, science, civics, home ec, shop, all of those things, gym, they're all important. But we're not doing that. We're focusing heavily on the test, which means we have issues where kids are being forced that testing is all that matters for their intellect, which, again, was good for an industrial world, but not for a post-industrial world. They need kids to learn how to think. They're not taught how to think. They're taught how to answer questions, and they act like that's the way to have success. 
Standardized testing has absolutely no bearing on a kid's uh, success as he or she becomes older. Zero. You can be a great test taker and fail and be a terrible poor test uh, tester and do awesome. It doesn't really matter um, on the testing. But not just that. It puts pressure on the kids. If you're a bad test taker at 10 years old or 11 years old, you are now labeled a dumb kid. Of course you're going to act out. You're labeled a dumb kid. Of course you're put in a bad kid school or the bad kid class, whatever. And you're going to act out. You're labeling a kid 11 years old because they don't know how to you know, stick a test well when they might be very bright or very savvy in many other ways. So end that. When you end that, the federal government will stop giving us money. But again, that's about $4 billion. In the case of New York State, what I said is once you end that, you end all those bureaucrats. And for those of you who know the education system in most states, New York State's one of the worst, but all states have this. You actually have a system of bureaucrats and administrators that make far more money than teachers, and their job is to support the government. Literally, in New York State, the average teacher makes about $80,000 a year. That's skewed by New York City. That's about the average. The average administrator makes double that. We have school districts in New York State that have more administrators and teachers. More administrators, in fact, in certain areas, the administrators are in a separate building being paid for by the government and don't even see the kids. Once you get rid of this, this, this piece of where they're looking for, you know, uh, supporting government, you will watch administrators go away. As those Indeed administrators go so. away, you can either hire more teachers or give raises. This is the thing we're talking about. I want local control over schools. They can make their own decisions. And will they make errors? Of course they will, but then others will learn from that. They will also have massive ideas that will work for others, that will work Indeed better so. for different districts and areas. Like, like we say, Larry Sharp, thank you for being with us. Other than what you just said, you have no opinion on this subject whatsoever, I can tell. But that's this that's is, correct. Yes, again, LarrySharp.com so, is going to be the short <laughs> way for the show. We're gonna, we're gonna. There's so much to talk about, Larry Sharp, and and please, others to our audience, uh, go and and seek out the Sharp way. This is Larry Sharp, a wonderful man, public spirited, caring, and effective. So there you have it. This is going to wrap up our segment here on All Rise. In so many ways, life is complicated, but if you employ these libertarian values, these approaches, the sunset provisions, auditing, competition, responsibility, we will all rise to. Together. And that's what's demonstrable once you can get into this. It's a, the tribal groups, the government making money that is that is working against us so much. So tune in next week or at any time uh, on demand. Go to uh, www.voiceamerica.com on the Variety Channel and listen to us again. And by the way, listen next week too because as we all know, we can all rise together and life is good. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening today. All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired judge Jim Gray can be heard every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We know you'll want to join us again next week and tell your friends that help is on the way. Strengthen my thoughts that help us control.